Hi, yeah, Harry Johnson out of Austin, Texas. Yeah, I think this new hour reform is one of the best safety things that they could have done. Um, that 14-hour clock has always been a huge safety issue for me. Have a good day. It's Todd Dills here with another edition of the Overdrive Radio Podcast. This one for May 26th after the Memorial Day holiday. Here's hoping the weekend went well for you, whether with friends and family at home, on the road, or some combination of the two. Later in the podcast, we'll have a longer talk here with Ed Miller, now retired from trucking and the author of a memoir called A Trucker's Tale, Wit, Wisdom, and True Stories from 60 Years on the Road. It's an intimate portrait of a life lived in trucking, from a kid changing tires in the 50s with his father and grandfather's trucking company, to the driver's seat, to managing shipper relationships in the office, and more. First, though, as you probably guessed from the viewpoint you heard at the top, a few more readers' responses to the hours of service final rule that FMCSA announced not quite two weeks ago. The caller looks on changes to the split sleeper rules as advantageous to safety, given the ability now to of the shorter period uh, and the splits to stop the 14-hour clock, as long as it's at least two hours long, according to the text of the rule itself. There was some confusion about whether such a pause was even in the rule from the get-go, given FMCSA didn't include a 14-hour pause button provision in the rule separate from the split sleeper changes, as evidenced by... Yeah, this is Jim out of Texas, and uh, those uh, the new laws coming out, 7 and 3 and all, that's just a waste of time. It is really a waste of time. We need to be able to stop the 14-hour clock period. Yeah, turns out, though, you can stop the clock with an at least two-hour break, putting you in a split sleeper berth daily cycle, which can be up to a three and seven, or as it were, seven and three-hour split. Functionally, though, you can use that shorter two to three-hour period as a pause button. Here's why. Getting out of the split sleeper berth daily cycle requires nothing more than a standard ten hours off. So, as I wrote in a bit of analysis accompanying a roundup of quick-take reader views on the hours changes last week, Drivers will be able to use that two to three hour period for long naps day in and day out. As long as a 10 hour break is taken when the day is done, those who want to avoid the more complicated duty window and driving hours calculations of the split sleeper cycle can use the pause to that effect without, as Jim put it in his call, just moving numbers around, that's all it's doing. That's how Jim seemed to view the split sleeper cycle generally. So the 14-hour pause change is likely to make it a more op, more useful tool for many. Jim also had another concern, though, when it comes to the present moment. It will be readily familiar to most overdrive readers, those with carrier authority, anyway. The main topic is what it needs to be is how the brokers are ripping us off. That's what that needs to be. We need uh, the brokers need to be regulated. We need to at least be at a minimum three. Three to four dollars per mile minimum. They're ripping us off. That's what the topic should be about. While there does seem to be little appetite in wider trucking and government circles for regulated rates in the manner of pre deregulation trucking, which of course came with its fair share of downsides for independent owner operators, U.S. consumers writ large and more parties know that the nearly three week long protest vigil groups of truckers held outside the White House with their rigs on Constitution Avenue ended last week with at least verbal commitments from both the White House and FMCSA to pursue enforcement of the transparency regulations on the books. 
if nothing else. Those regulations, as I've noted before, are codified in 49 Code of Federal Regulations 371.3, 49 CFR 371.3. Those regulations give truckers and shippers both the right to review access to freight transaction details, including what the shipper paid for the load and vice versa. We'll have further reporting on where that all goes, but suffice it to say it's attention to the issue, and particularly owner-operators need to be able to evaluate a broker in part based on pricing to determine if he or she is dealing with an honest player. The issue has most certainly broken through the background. Visit overdriveonline.com slash tag slash brokers for the latest. One more view on the hours of service. This one comes from a day cab short haul driver who's reacting to the change in the final rule that extends the short haul rules governing radius from 100 to 150 air miles and the hours limit uh, for those such drivers that are reporting back to their uh, principal work location every day from 12 to 14 hours. Hello, this is Michael Trump. Uh, I am out of Beloit, Wisconsin. I don't believe we should be allowed to work 14 hours. Because by the time you work 14 hours and commute back and forth to your home every day, you know, you don't get much time for sleep. 12 hours should be the limit. Different for, for guys that have sleepers. They can just go to bed right when they stop. We have to commute back and forth. This particular change, though, probably the least applicable to Overdrive's mostly longer haul audience among all the hours changes is the one that's been speculated about the most when it comes to the potential for legal challenge to the rule by so-called safety advocates and the Teamsters. Keep tuned for any news on that front to overdriveonline.com. Keep in mind, too, about the rule. It won't go into effect until September at the earliest at this point. Going up 95 and then 15 and, yeah, too much snow for me. <laughs> Nowadays, the only snow I want to see is on television. Now to Ed Miller who grew up in western North Carolina and today lives in Rising Sun, Maryland, where in retirement from trucking he drives for a school bus company and, during the pandemic, has been helping company owner, uh, the company owner keep uh, its fleet of buses in working order. He was talking there about a snowy run under a supposed hot load in the 1960s, chronicled in his new book. His Trucker's Tale is out now from Apollo Publishers, officially last month. You may have seen my announcement of it then. We published some early drafts of the book years ago now, too. Miller wrote originally with the notion in his writer's mind that he was scripting a conversation of sorts for, with a fellow trucker. In the intervening years, though, and with help from a capable editor at Apollo, he says the book transformed to be something of an explainer for those who are unfamiliar with trucking, too. Unfamiliar with wheel seals and deregulation and shippers, brokers, receivers, and, yeah, those hot loads I mentioned. Plenty remains of the book's early direct address to truckers approach, though. Here's how that snow, snowy hot load ends up, for example, on page 125 of the hardback version of the book. The snow caused me to miss the 7 o'clock delivery time by an hour. When I handed the bills of lading to the receiver, I said something like, Sorry I'm late, but here's that hot load of paper everybody's been screaming about. He looked over the listing of the load's contents and proclaimed, we don't need this, you know what, rhymes with it. That's my little insertion there, by the way. Quote, we have a whole warehouse full of it. The paper mill didn't even send us what we needed. Every truck driver has had similar snafus happen to him, Miller wrote. Upon delivery, we learned that our hot loads really weren't hot at all. Well, I grew up in a family of truckers. My dad and granddad had 
tractor trailers when I was born. Right. And from the time I was old enough to crawl up into a B61 Mac, I've wanted to be a trucker, I guess, all my life. Uh, my dad picked up new furniture from all the different furniture factories in western North Carolina and brought all those LTL shipments to our warehouse where we unloaded and then separated according to where the different stops were in Michigan, Illinois, and Indiana. And on Saturday and Sunday, we'd load the trucks, trailers, uh, having anywhere from 20 to 40 stops on them. And these stick haulers would take them and deliver them all over those three states. And they did that. Oh, my, I guess I was in Vietnam and I came back and they kept it running for a couple of more years while I went back to college. Right. So in those days of growing up trucking, I learned to do about everything uh, around trucks, uh, changed tires, greased the equipment, fixed lights, put patches on roofs when they got holes knocked in them before they could before we had time to take them to a shop and have them done correctly, put right. tape and tar over them, and <laughs> like everybody has done. I've driven in college, I'd get broke every now and then, and I would stay out of college for three or four months, drive a truck for this company in eastern North Carolina and run up and down the east coast hauling building supplies and paper and anything on a flatbed and a van. Yeah. And I did that for about five years off and on and off and on and then got offered a job as uh, an assistant manager in a at a warehouse or a trucking terminal in Baltimore and went full time management after that i guess i was 26 or 27 years old i go back in my mind <clears throat> excuse me every time i talk about trucking to uh, my dad my granddad i learned to drive from my dad i rode with him a lot and watched him change gears and of course trucks back in the 1960s were not very powerful compared to what they are today. And this B61 Mac had a duplex transmission. We were coming back from Morganton, North Carolina one time after we just picked up furniture. And he pulled over all inside and said, you want to drive? And I, I don't know, I may have been 15, 16. <laughs> at most. I said, well, of course. So I got in that thing and we started along and I got 10th gear and then we started up this hill and of course the left hand stick was in fifth gear and the right hand stick was in high gear and as it started 
coming down in RPMs, I stuck my hand through the st- <laughs> through the steering wheel and grabbed the left hand stick and grabbed the right stick with my right hand and I double clutched that thing and I put it in. Uh, well, somehow I ended up in fifth and low. And he said, how in the world did you do that? And I said, oh, I've just been watching you for all these years. <laughs> <laughs> You'd always heard about people sticking their hand through and holding the steering wheel while they're changing gears. But I actually <laughs> did that at that age, and I, uh, I was a happy camper. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something to write home about right there. Yeah, yeah it's fun. <laughs> and my granddad. That story is not in the book, uh, is it? I think I it think probably it was. Uh, yeah, that may have gone through an edit because okay. it was most people wouldn't understand what in the world a double clutching <laughs> situation right. was. Well, they don't even gotcha. know what a clutch is. Heard somebody say the other day they have a stick shift Austin Healy, and they said they it's a good thing because none of their grandkids would be able to steal it and go for a ride because they don't know how to change gears in them. <laughs> <laughs> and your granddad is a is a big uh, character in the first part of this book, for sure. Yeah, he is. Um, well, my dad was the operations part of things. Okay. He, and granddad was, he actually bought all the trucks and the trailers and yeah. The mechanic and tire changer. Where, where, remind me of the town where you were from. Marion. Bottom of the mountain from yep. coming from Asheville East, you go through Old Fort, and then the next town is Marion. But yeah, so your grandpa, he he kind of taught you. He taught you a lot of the the sort of mechanical stuff that would that you ended up knowing and that would sort of serve you well. Um, later on, eh? yes, he did. We, when I was real young, I got up with him. Uh, he had cows and horses, chickens, pigs, and got up with him and fed all the animals. And uh, then got to working with him and watching him fabricate things on an anvil. I guess he mm-hmm. was one of the original jury riggers. Yeah. He, he could make something work, which served me well in Vietnam because we had to, we were out away from camp quite a bit, and we had to make things work. So you learn the benefit of bailing wire, and of course you remember uh, trucks used to go up and down the highway with their fuel tanks before straps were. Uh, made a heck of a lot better than they were back then. Then they'd have uh, straps, nylon straps, holding their fuel tanks on. And like chaining an axle up, I saw him do that, which served me very well years later when uh, an axle burned up on me, which is in the book. Did you? Yeah, have, yeah. Have, have you finished it yet? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Oh, good. Yeah. And there's lots of yeah, there's lots of this this stuff that we're talking about here that uh, is really familiar, very familiar to me at this point. You mentioned you mentioned being in uh, Vietnam. 
and uh, th- that's a big part of the book too. Um, that early life and and then up through the service is probably about half of it. I, I think. Yeah, it is. And um, and you were a uh, for those who haven't read the book, you have you were a CB, mm-hmm. um, which um, which is is responsible for what exactly? Explain that to for those who don't know. ACB actually stands for Construction Battalion, a land-based branch of the U.S. Navy, and CBs uh, have been around since World War II. Uh, They are the first, along with Marines, usually to hit the beach somewhere in some conflict and they're responsible for building airports or runways yeah. and any build anything roads bridges buildings uh, in Vietnam we upgraded a one and a half lane dirt highway to a 40 foot super highway some of our builders uh, built huts for personnel, uh, landing pads for helicopters, and engineers to design the bridges that we built. Yeah, your, your sort of narration of, of that time is, is pretty interesting and, and, and very kind of, it doesn't exactly follow and the rest of the book is kind of like this too it's kind of it's chronological um but it doesn't always follow a straight line and and very it's very it's almost um it's almost it's pretty impressionistic uh for one there's um there's lots of, of brief scenes that are just kind of tied together almost almost like like uh, strands of memory of uh, of sorts, but also oftentimes by topic and setting and what have you, and uh, quite some quite great stuff in there. How long exactly were you in uh, in Vietnam? Because it seems like uh, reading it, it feels like it is a very long time, but uh, I don't think it was. Was it? Oh, it seemed like a hell of a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's true to life. Yeah, the book's true to life there. <laughs> We went on a deployment for eight months, and we're, we came back to the States for six, and then we're to go back for another eight, which, of course, would have been the 16-month tour. Yeah. Uh, but as I said in the book, they came out, the Navy came out with an early out, and I made it by 10 days, I think, and did not raise my hand. Well, I'll go back. So. Right. Yep. Got out early and didn't complain a bit. Yeah. And I can actually thank uh, Julia Abramoff, the uh, editor and owner, one of the owners of Apollo Publishers. Uh, she took a lot of these disjointed stories. As I was writing, well, she made them into something a heck of a lot more coherent than me just writing 
for mm-hmm. days and then oh yeah, I forgot that and I'd write it and she she got everything together and it it's a heck of a lot better than it was, I'll tell you that. So the the book kind of it covers like pretty much uh, everything you've done when it comes to trucking and you know, including um, you know, the many many years of uh, experience in kind of terminal and business management with various and sundry trucking companies, including uh, big mistake trucking, right? <laughs> B- BM trucking. I could probably hazard a guess of who that was, but I'm not 100% sure, frankly. But I'm not- As I said, I changed most names yeah. trying to keep away from getting my rear end whipped. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it covers yeah. The the book covers most of your um, of your life here, but uh, you know, in trucking. But how uh, you know where where did it start for you in terms of just the writing of it? How did you come to this idea that you wanted to put all this down? Very truthfully, is because of a conversation I had with a friend on the telephone one day, and we talked about a lot of stuff. We've been friends for years and I told him a story of an old truck driver that I'd worked with 40 years ago and we both laughed about it and talked some things because his he'd been in trucking himself for a while mm-hmm. and that afternoon I got to thinking that it'd be fun to put that story on paper and then maybe my grandkids would like to read it someday my kids those those poor souls they've heard my stories over and over and over and they <laughs> of course my youngest says dad i i've heard this before but i let you tell it just to see if you're going to tell it the same way you told it last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh boy yeah so i i put it on paper and the next day i thought of another story and i wrote it down and i just enjoyed putting these things on paper and remembering all the great people I've worked with through mm-hmm. the years and the funny and sad and stupid and great things they've done. And yeah. I, I just kept writing. Uh, I had anterior cervical fusion four years ago or five and there were months that I couldn't do much anything, couldn't hold my grandbaby and mm-hmm. didn't, couldn't do well, my wife worked at a college then and I would go to work with her in the morning and she'd tool off to her workplace and I'd go to the college's library and I had written most of my stories on or the book on longhand because I enjoy writing that way. And I used their computers and uh, reduced everything to uh, the printed word. And take, I took several flash drives with me and make sure that I had everything. And if one died, I'd have it. And I did that for probably four or five months and I just enjoyed 
the writing, uh, yep. remembering remembering everything. I, I brought back things that I hadn't remembered in 50 years or better. It's amazing because there's, I mean, there's a lot of detail in this book, and, and um, I, I do think it's – I think you and, and probably with some of the work of your editor have done something that that I think um, – kind of really spells out some of the details of, of, uh, of trucking, um, and the, from the equipment to just the whole business side of things for an audience that may not know anything about it. Right. Like, and I think it does a fairly good job of that. And, and I hope, uh, and, and I'm wondering if, if you, if you started out thinking in those terms, uh, truthfully, Todd, I started and, I guess the entire way through the book, I was writing as though I was talking to another trucker. Yeah, okay. I think some of that uh, has been left in the book because yeah, uh, you see it, especially in the nights of the highway, and I mm-hmm. ask these drivers to don't do their arrogant driving in the left-hand lane. I saw somebody on the interstate yesterday doing that. Four lanes of traffic, and that fellow's in the very left-hand lane like he had good sense. Uh, it was decided that a lot of that, of course, uh, may be too truck-specific, and that uh, the average non-trucking reader wouldn't really know any of this stuff. Yeah. Although I did... Uh, have an interview with somebody last week and he said uh, uh, he said that I've known of traffic managers but I really have never had a good definition of what a traffic manager does <laughs> so if I educated one person on something like that maybe maybe some others will get some idea of what the truckers are having to deal with and I hope um, people get I hope people have as much fun reading this as I did writing it. Yeah, and clearly you did. That's the other thing. Uh, I get the sense of reading this that you are sort of telling jokes at your own expense, almost, and do a lot of it in a kind of a sly way. And, Some and of It's pretty good. Like and at other expense sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> trying to leap up onto that dock at Bethlehem Steel and hitting that spot of oil on the ground there. Oh, yeah, I've done, we've all done some dumb things, and I thought that I may as well tell them my brothers would have hollered at me if I had not included some of them. Yeah, this book ends, um, you know, it starts in, in the 60s when you were a child. I'm, I'm, I'm right about that, right? That was when you kind of yeah. were hanging around grandpa's and doing all well, that. Born, and in four, born in 48, so yeah. it was uh, the 50s, mid-50s to... On. Yeah, and it ends with uh, the uh, Jason's Law and, and the parking issue. Yeah, parking problems still around. I I work for a school bus company, drive a right. bus, but school's not in. So every Friday I've been going to three different lots uh, the owner has, and I crank the trucks or the buses and let them run for thirty minutes and keep all the juices flowing in them. And I passed a thing called the Maryland House uh, rest area 
on 95 about oh, 85, 83 miles north of Baltimore. Well, no, 40 miles north of Baltimore. And trucks were, as you know, parked all over the place. They were even this morning early parked on both sides of the entrance ramp to on the northbound side. And as I went by, they were all the parking places were full, and they were still parked on either side of the uh, entrance ramp ramp to get back on 95. So the parking problems not any better, that's for sure. In the latter part of Miller's career in the first decade of this century, he was actually part of a parking inventory study conducted by the Maryland DOT. You might think of it as a precursor to a lot of what's happened in the wake of Jason Rivenberg's tragic murder and Jason's Law's passage and all the subsequent greater national attention to the truck parking issue. I got to work with all the commercial vehicle enforcement folks in the state and other uh, agencies also, federal. And we had a meeting one day I was in and I asked... Uh, some of the enforcement guys said, do we have a parking problem? Because uh, I think it, what, I don't think, uh, what brought this around was somebody ran into the back of one, parked on the shoulder, and of course, the car driver died. And several of the cops said, uh, we don't know if we see him parked on the shoulder, but, and we don't mess with them because if we think we'll be liable if we wake them and send them down road and then they run over a bunch of people and kill them so we don't mess with them so no one could really answer whether there was a problem or not so i went to the at the time uh, the secretary of transportation and uh, asked if we could do a study and with his acceptance and uh, interest. I got him to send a notice out to all state agencies asking for volunteers, and we got about 50 people together, and uh, I assigned them to different sections of all the interstates and major highways, 301 and 1, and several other roads, all the major highways, and for four nights, they uh, did the same section of highway back and forth and went into truck stops, rest areas, uh, any place that trucks were parked on the ramps, on the shoulders, and they indicated them, and we did it from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m., and after those four nights, and matter of fact, Trap or weather was good. We didn't have any rain or anything, mm -hmm. snow. And we got all the information in and found that uh, at any point during the night, Maryland at that time was uh, at about a 3,400 truck parking deficit. Therefore, mm -hmm. the, the trucks were parked all over Hill and Hill's half acre. So we learned a lot, and then other states got involved in it and started doing their own studies. And, of course, Atri's gotten involved in it. I was on Atri's 
uh, research advisory committee for two terms, I guess. And I kept asking and proposing for truck parking to be on their list of uh, projects mm-hmm. to study and said there wasn't enough interest nationwide but luckily a few years later that became one of their research projects and that's after Jason's law right yeah but, uh, when they took it up yeah yeah yep but yeah the the Maryland uh, what were the results of the Maryland uh, study that you championed there did, did anything happen as a result of that uh, by in terms of the state did they uh did they make uh, new priorities for building capacity or do anything else? Nope. No, I wish they had. Well, they, we don't have money. We don't have money. We don't have money. I think we've heard that story before, haven't we? In any case, a big thanks to Ed Miller for walking us through some of his history and for the new book. That's a trucker's tale, wit, wisdom, and true stories from 60 years on the road. I'll let him take us out with a little bit of reading from Chapter 7. You heard him mention his title before. Part 7, Knights of the Highway. In years past, truckers have had the distinction of being known as Knights of the Highway because they could always be counted on to stop and help stranded four-wheelers. Through the years, these knights changed thousands of tires, extinguished numerous camper tire fires, added water to countless dry radiators, pushed vehicles out of the snow, saved many lives by pulling motorists from burning vehicles, and even delivered babies. Truck drivers have never expected to be paid for helping, and most refused offers of payment. They stopped to help because it was the right thing to do. These days, some truckers still stop to help, and all stop in the case of emergencies, but the practice seems to have diminished. I suppose there are some obvious reasons for not stopping, such as the threat of being mugged or having your vehicle jacked. For these same reasons, most car drivers don't stand outside their vehicles and wave down help. They stay put in their locked cars and use their cell phones to call for help. High interstate speeds also makes it impractical for trucks to stop because by the time the truck driver notices a breakdown, They're too far past the breakdown site to stop. A night at the highway once saved me from a costly tow bill, not to mention possible admonishment from Pennsylvania law enforcement. It happened around 11 o'clock on a cold, snowy evening in Pittsburgh when I was on my way home from a business dinner, one that either started late or more likely ran late because we shared a few after-dinner cocktails in the restaurant's bar. I'd left downtown through the Fort Pitt Tunnel and was headed up Green Tree Hill. Although there were only a few inches of fallen snow, plows had pushed it out of the road and into the berms on the shoulders. I thought I was driving carefully, but my Datsun, now Nissan, 240Z 2 Plus 2, somehow straddled one of those two feet high snow berms. When the car came to a stop, I put it in reverse and let out the clutch but absolutely nothing happened. I got out of the car and saw that I had perfectly balanced it on top of the berm, and all four wheels were off the ground. I was not dressed properly for slogging several miles through the snowy slush in order to find a payphone, so I used my CB radio to beg some trucker to come to my aid. 
Using the truckers, Channel 19, I broadcast. Are any of you 18-wheelers heading up Green Tree Hill? Could someone with a chain come help me? I continued repeating the transmission as though it was my SOS or Mayday call, throwing in things like, come on, guys, have a heart, or help another trucker and pull me out of this snow. Twenty minutes after I began my plea, a knight up the highway in the form of an owner-operator pulled up behind my perfectly balanced vehicle. He noticed me while he was heading up Green Tree Hill, and then he heard me begging for help on the CB radio. He said he had chuckled a couple of times while listening to my broadcasts. I knew this section of highway very well, and I was aware that this fine fellow had driven several miles and upon reaching the exit at the top of the hill, done a flip and driven back down the hill to come help me. He then had to go around two different cloverleafs so he could get back to me. With the power of his chain, it took all of 10 seconds to pull my car off the berm. I tried my damnedest to pay him for, the, for his trouble. I asked him for his name and address so I could send him a check. When that didn't work, I asked if I could buy him breakfast. He declined it all and calmly explained that it just looked like I needed help and he was glad to be able to assist. Personally, I think another reason that truckers don't stop to help nowadays, especially younger drivers, they are unaware of their former status as Knights of the Highway, and some think like the Baltimore dispatcher who said, no, baby, that ain't my department. <laughs> Perhaps if they understood the storied past of their forebears and the honor that in here's being one of the last great American cowboys, younger drivers would be more inclined to take on the role. Maybe truck driving school should teach a course called Knights of the Highway 101. It is also true that the revised federally mandated hours of service limit drivers being able to waste time by stopping to help, contributing to the decline in the number of truckers observed pulling over to help four-wheelers. Some people may think I'm full of shit for saying this, but quite candidly, I do feel that truckers need the better image that can be brought about by helping others more often. The sight of a big rig helping a four-wheeler is a very powerful message to the mooring public, motoring public. It's not that there aren't truckers who will help, it's just that there aren't enough. One thing, though, has never changed. The Knights of the Highway can always be counted on to offer their help to a woman who's standing on the shoulder alongside her car, especially in hot weather, and especially if the woman is partial to short shorts and halter tops. These breakdowns have even been known to cause traffic problems due to the high number of tractor-trailers pulling over to help this just one lady. <laughs> little example there of the humor we talked about earlier. And who knows but that, with those hours changes, maybe the tide turns to a new age for the Knights of the Highway. Thanks for everything, Ed. Everybody else, search Ed Miller at overdriveonline.com for some information on where you can pick up a copy of the book. I'd recommend it. And until next time, Keep it pro out there.